0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today in the book of Colossians, a message entitled Always Thankful, Always Encouraging. So turning your Bibles to Colossians 1, verses 1 to 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I can think of at least two reasons why Paul, the author of Colossians, might not be thankful. You know, First, the letter of Colossians is one of four which the apostle writes that are known as prison epistles. In this letter, along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, those letters were written by Paul while in prison in Rome, awaiting a hearing before Caesar's tribunal. And prison conditions might have been difficult as Paul was chained to a member of the Praetorium, which was Caesar's elite guard. Prison surely was a reason to be anything less than thankful. When Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, he made it clear that he believed His imprisonment was in Christ. He believed that it was Christ himself who had sent him into that prison to share the gospel with the people in the heart of the Roman Empire. And so, rather than complaining, Paul's deeply grateful to be in prison in Rome. There's another reason why Paul might have been less than grateful. The Colossian church, a church he never started, nor as far as we know had he ever visited there, that was a church that was threatened by heresy. Christians in that city were being tempted to abandon a pure love for Christ and adopt a hybrid Christianity intermixed with a multitude of popular philosophies and heresies. And so if Paul had felt hard done by because of his unjust imprisonment, and then he received the news of this church, and that was paying attention to the, you know, what the Germans call the Zeitgeist The spirit of the day, popular philosophies that the world was buying into, while you might have expected him to start this letter with a blast, but he doesn't. He begins with genuine expressions of thanksgiving, and that, as we will see, has a great deal to teach us. It's a great deal to teach pastors and teachers. It's a great deal to teach parents, anyone who's in leadership over anyone else. So go to the beginning of the book, Paul's opening of the letter of Colossians. I'm reading chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you in peace from God our Father. We notice right at the start that Paul identifies himself as the author, but he also identifies Timothy. But as the letter carries on, it becomes obvious that the letter is exclusively from Paul. So it might be that Timothy served as the recording secretary. And we might also notice that, unlike other letters, Paul here does not identify himself as a servant of Christ. He simply says he's an apostle. Now, of course, we're only guessing, but it seems likely that since Paul has never been to Colossae and they'd never met him, he's at pains to stress his apostolic authority. That is, as someone who's been directly trained by Jesus, and he's been directly called by Jesus, his message is not of human origin, but rather he's delivering a message that comes directly from Jesus. And that's an important point, because all the apostles had not heard of Jesus, they were trained by Jesus, and then were promised that the Holy Spirit would uniquely remind them to accurately remember everything that Jesus taught, so that when they spoke, They were not speaking on their own authority, but rather they were direct spokesmen of Jesus, communicating exactly what Jesus wanted of that church. That's a very important point, and Paul wants to make it here at the very beginning of his letter. He may not have met them, but he wants them not to think that this letter comes from just another Christian teacher. Rather, he's one of the elite 13 men who have been given the privilege as well as the obligation to speak directly on behalf of Jesus, who is the Lord of the church and the Lord of all. Now, whereas Paul not only wants them to recognize who he is, he's also keenly interested in them understanding who they are. They're saints and faithful brothers. Now, he calls them saints not because they've reached a level of spiritual maturity. Rather, they're saints because that's their status in the kingdom of God. See, to be a saint is to be a sanctified one, made holy. Again, I hasten to stress it here that they are not that because they've reached a level of spirituality. See, anyone reading the New Testament carefully will recognize that a saint is a Christian. And any Christian is a saint. It's not as if, as is taught in Romanism, that a saint is a spiritual elite. Rather, a saint is one who has been cleansed from their former sins by the blood of Jesus. They've been made holy by faith in him. Let me say it again. Every believer in Jesus is a saint, made holy by the one who makes men and women holy. And Paul also calls them faithful, which might be more puzzling than calling them saints. And I say that because, as we already saw when we began our study yesterday, that there's a great danger in this church that some of the believers were falling into syncretism, that is, of diluting their faith so much so, that one wonders you know, if Paul might have choked over the words you know, faithful believers. But just like the title saints, so also faithful is a title for all believers. We're called out of darkness. We were, as Paul reminded the Ephesian Christians, once dead in trespasses and sins, once we followed the course of this world, and once we followed the prince of the power of the air. But God had intervened, transferring us from the dark kingdom and made us faithful sons and daughters of his. I tend to think, rather than choking over the word faithful, Paul uses the word to remind them who they are and why, at the end of the day, they could never desert the one who called them. That the very nature of the true believer is to remain faithful to his Lord or her Lord until death. That is, it is possible grammatically that in calling them faithful, Paul is reminding believers that this is what a saint is. Once faithful to darkness, you're now faithful to Christ. There are no other options. And then in typically Pauline fashion, and indeed in early Christian terms, Paul greets them with the words, grace and peace from God the Father that is probably the way that all early Christians greeted each other. Grace meant that they understood that it was grace that saved them. And peace reminded them that at the present there was no animosity between them and the Father. And so having completed the opening of the letter, Paul now moves to his introduction. And in the introduction to Colossians, Paul wants to communicate that he's thankful for them. Yeah, I know, he's also concerned for them, but that'll come later. Out of the gate, he wants to begin not by chastising them, but by encouraging them. And what a lesson that is for us. See, many of us, when we want to express our concern for a fellow brother or sister in Christ, we often begin with the words, look, I need to let you know how concerned I am for you. And in truth, that might be fine and well, but we're also just as interested in telling someone how much we're thankful for them. Sadly, some have forgotten that. Let's listen to the heart of a pastor, pastor and Apostle Paul. Listen to his pastoral heart, the heart of a shepherd, concerned for the welfare of the people he has not yet met. And in expressing thanks for them, I want you to notice that Paul does it by showing how his thankfulness comes in two forms. The first is his thankfulness in his personal prayer life, and the second is his thankfulness because he has heard about areas in their lives where the faith has genuinely taken root. And by the time he's finished this first section, he's communicated to these believers that even though he's going to address their problems, he believes that they're genuine, genuine in Christ. So let's start with the first reason for thankfulness, and that's found in verse three. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Let me put that in my own words. See, Paul's saying both I and Timothy, perhaps he includes others as well, but we've been in the habit of praying for you no doubt the founder of that church and Paul's ministry companion, Epaphras, has been reporting to Paul about this church. And Paul believes it's his first duty to pray earnestly for that church. No doubt Paul's been asking Epaphras for as many details as he can because he's using those details to fill in his prayer life. And says Paul, One phrase describes an overriding theme in my prayers for you, and it's the phrase, we always thank God. Perhaps that's how Paul always began. You know, thanking, reveling in the reports of what God had done for them. Gratefulness. Still, Paul's not done. You know, the one we're thanking is God the Father, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus. Please notice that his prayers are directed to the Father in Paul's letters, and for that matter. In the rest of the New Testament, reference to God, that almost always is a reference to God the Father. Reference to the Lord, that's almost always a reference to Jesus the Son. So then the Father is God, the Son is the Lord. Those are both, as we will see in this letter, a reference to deity. God is God, the Lord also is fully God. Paul mentions, however, that the Father is the Father of the Lord, That is, he is the Father of Christ Jesus, and he mentions it here because later in the same chapter, Paul will spell out the authority of and the identity of Jesus. Paul's thanking the Father in the name of Jesus, but he reminds the Colossians that they must not think of the Father without at the same time thinking of the Lord who is Jesus. It always goes together. That's what Paul says.
0: It's never too early to start planning your travels for the new year. And our April 2024 cruise is filling up faster than we'd imagined. You won't wanna miss this incredible opportunity to vacation and be under the direct teaching of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh and be encouraged with Laugh Against Phil Calloway and share moments of musical inspiration with special guest, Amanda Stott. From April 5th to the 14th, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean, including Miami, Porta Plata, St. John's, and more. For more information, to download the itinerary or to sign up, just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are used and all related costs are covered by participants.
1: Paul's God, and the Christian God for that matter, is not the common idea that we often hear expressed in our day. That is, God as we understand him. No, no, that's not God. God is the Trinitarian God. To mention God is to speak of the one true God who has revealed himself in his son Jesus. Already at this point, we can see that Paul's God is not a syncretistic God. He's the true God. And so Paul begins his letter to the Colossians telling them that the expressions of thankfulness for them is found in his prayer life. He as well as his team have often prayed for a church that he's never met. But Epaphras has often talked to Paul about this church, and in response, Paul has included them in his prayer life. And as he's prayed, he's filled with thanksgiving for them. But now he goes beyond the fact that he's mentioned them in his prayer. He now mentions the reason he's praying with thanksgiving. Now, you might have instantly noticed a familiar triad here, faith, hope, and love. Did you notice it? We've heard, says Paul, of your faith in Christ, of your love for all the saints, and of your hope. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, Paul says that faith, hope, and love are abiding. They're enduring. They're things that never perish. These three are the foundation of the Christian. And in Colossians, Paul says, he's heard of this among the Colossians. And and as far as faith goes, it's faith in Christ Jesus. And here Paul uses faith as a verb. It means trust, confidence in Jesus. Jesus is the one who purchased their salvation. That's true. But as we go on, we'll see that Jesus is constantly directing all things. So this is a group of people who know who Jesus is, who trust in Jesus, and says, Paul, I've heard about this and then the love part. And here he does not mention love for Jesus. He mentions love for the saints. And it was John who made a point of this, and it's in 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, if that's true, and it is, Paul is saying, you Colossians, You're not the people who claim to love God but don't love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Indeed, you're the opposite. You do genuinely have faith in Jesus and you do genuinely love brothers and sisters in Christ and all the brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world. And Paul says, I'm thankful for that. In short, Paul's saying, I know you're genuine. Now, we don't know what specific things led Paul to say that. No doubt, Epaphras has been filling Paul in on, you know, some of the details. Perhaps when Paul had been raising money to help the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem, maybe the Colossian Christians had also contributed. They didn't have to, but they loved Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and it seemed no difficulty to make sure that their needs were being cared for. Paul might've had other things in mind. He might also have heard of how the church in Colossae interacted with each other, and he was deeply encouraged by the reports. There might've been other acts of love and of care that inspired Paul's prayers, But what he heard had deeply encouraged him and caused him to give thanks. I have to wonder what the Colossians thought when they heard these words being read to their church on a Sunday morning. The great apostle, even though he had never met them, had been keeping track of their record of loving deeds. And he had not only noticed, it filled him with great joy. They would have known that Paul is so much more than the one who corrects them when things go wrong, but rather he's the first one to stand in line and to cheer when things go right. And things were right when he saw the actions of love. And then next Paul mentions hope, but here he does so in a unique fashion. It's not just that I've noticed your faith in Jesus and your love for one another and the hope that you exhibit towards the coming of Jesus. Rather, it's the faith and love that have come about or have been inspired by the hope that you have. Notice that in verse 5, you know, it begins with the word because. That is, I've noticed your faith. I've noticed your love. And those two virtues, faith and love, they've risen out of your hope. You heard of the promises God has made to you. As to what is laid for you in heaven. And because of that, you trusted in Jesus. And because of that, you loved one another. That is, knowing that the future promises of God are solid. Well, that led you to give yourselves not to this world's concerns. Because you know this world is passing away. But you gave yourself to that which was enduring. You traded in short-term values for long-term ones. And then Paul adds, and here I'm reading halfway through verse 5, of this, that is, of the fact that you chose the values of eternity, of this, while well, you've come to this conclusion, from the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that Christ died for your sins, risen from the dead. That is the good news. You had heard it. You understood it. You believed it. And more clearly, you acted on it. Go to verse 6. This gospel, the good news, it has been bearing fruit among you, and it is increasing among you. You know, of the increase, Paul might have been thinking about even greater faith and hope, or he might have been thinking of the fact that more and more people in Colossae were coming to faith because of the attitudes and actions of the believers there. Hence, says Paul, the thing that's happened among you is the very same thing that's been happening all over the world. You Colossians have rightfully taken your place alongside of other faithful Christians throughout the world, and the results that they've seen is also the results that you've seen. You heard the truth of the gospel, you understood it. And says, Paul, that's what has made my prayers for you always result in thanksgiving. And even while Paul commends them for their faith, he also wants to commend the man who brought the Colossians their faith. Think of what Paul could have done at the outset of the letter. Let's say he had begun with warning them and that they were on the verge of being led astray by false philosophies and empty deceit in human traditions. And then he could have said, and I didn't plant your church, this guy named Epaphras did, and it makes me wonder what he got wrong. No, no, instead he tells the Colossians, I know your faith is genuine because of what I see, and more so, he tells them what he thinks about the man who brought them the faith. Colossians 1, 7 and 8, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Look at how this reads. Paul says, you learned the faith from Epaphras. Now, I want us to notice what Paul's doing here. He's doing three things. By calling Epaphras our beloved fellow servant and faithful minister of Christ, he's putting a stamp of approval on Epaphras' ministry in the city of Colossae. He's saying, when he taught you the faith, You didn't learn an inferior gospel by a man who was a lightweight. Rather, this man was a heavyweight. And second, Paul's also saying that when you depart from what Epaphras taught and think that you can add human philosophy to it, you err. And finally, third, Paul is saying if you reject Epaphras, you're also rejecting us. In short, the man who brought them the gospel was a competent, well-trained, faithful minister of the gospel, and you Colossians were blessed by God that this is the kind of man who preached to you in the first place. There was nothing second-rate about the beginnings of your faith. So let's back up and return to the theme of this introduction to the book of Colossians. To a church that was in serious danger of running amok. Now Paul tells them, I would be remiss to begin with anything short of remembering all the things that are good and positive in the Christian church in Colossae. I've been in my prayer life filled with thanksgiving for what has occurred. This foundation, thankfulness for them, and encouragement towards them, that some very good things had happened, formed the groundwork upon which Paul would address his concerns. It told the Colossians that the man who is concerned was also the man who had taken the time to understand them and deeply loved them and had noticed the progress they had made. Let me say this to all Christian leaders. The opening verses in Colossians should serve as a template for how Christians are to lead God's people. When people need correcting, do you Christian leader or teacher or discipler? You let people know that you're also thankful for them. And then can you articulate? which areas of their faith is genuine, and how you've seen the gospel grow. Because if you haven't done that, you're not discipling God's people, and you're certainly not blessing them. But quite frankly, all of God's people need to be corrected. But they don't need to be corrected by people who don't love them. We all learn when the person leading and teaching us genuinely loves and has noticed our growth. And so the test of a godly leader is that while we're concerned, we're also thankful and never cease to be encouraging. Always
0: thankful, always encouraging. Thanks, John. Um, Let me ask you, because I think, you know, we've been pastors, Uh, we've struggled perhaps erring on one side or the other of this, but is it true to say a pastor needs to learn how to balance correction with love,
1: Yeah, I mean, we sure do. I mean, whenever we correct, uh, you know, not out of love, um, but because we really want to put somebody in their place and we're going to straighten them out and we're going to tell them what for, you know, whenever that kind of leads us along, I mean, immediately people know that we're not being shepherded. I mean, we're being kind of ambushed, and I think they rightfully feel uh, resentful. It's not just true of pastors, and that's what I want to say. It's true of all of us in whatever area of leadership that we've been given. I mean, Paul really provides for us a model of how to behave in all circumstances, so if there are individuals, to be corrected, as there always are. And there will be times when we're going to need to be corrected. And when we're being corrected, I mean, how do you want to be corrected? I would want to be corrected by someone who loves me and encourages me at the same time.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Colossians, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Bible makes it clear. There is not a single passing moment where God is not present, active, sustaining. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. How comforting to know that God is always present. That is the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's upcoming calendar. Our 2024 In All Things Scripture Reading Calendar pivots around Dr. John Newfeld's upcoming book, Arriving in the New Year with stunning imagery, sneak peek quotes from Dr. John's book and inspiring scripture, it reminds us that God is never far. We encourage you to request your free 2024 scripture wall calendar and follow along with a daily Bible reading plan inside. To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.